May I say it again? The time is going to come in the days ahead where it's going to be more important where you go to church than where you live or where you work. We're going to need that support system in the days ahead. Let me read 1 Timothy, the third chapter. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop or overseer or pastor or shepherd, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, have all the gifts of the Spirit, know how to dance in the Spirit, clap his hands, and is that what you see in there? That's not in there, is it? He's talking about quality of character, not the gifts. Satan can, can counterfeit all the gifts, but he cannot counterfeit righteous living. He cannot counterfeit morality. You might have a, a pastor, you know of a pastor that's just got all these gifts flowing through him. He says, woo, must be of God. Look at his character first. Why? Because when Moses was in Egypt, every miracle he performed, the magicians in that day could perform the same miracle by another power, but they did it. Satan can heal. Satan can even give you tongues. Satan can tell you something about another person, give you a word of knowledge, word of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity, I didn't write that verse, by the way. One of the most prominent things I see in the lives and families of pastors today, and boy, do they get upset when I talk about it. This is not a suggestion. This is a requirement for one who is in the ministry. His family is supposed to obey quickly and quietly. They're to be in subjection. Why? Well, that's just Paul's idea. Is it really? Look at the next verse. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? That's the comparison. Not a novice being lifted up, less being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report with them, of them which are without, lest, the, lest he fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which, which are without. He not only should have a good report inside, but outside the church. Let me read it to you now of the Living Bible. It is a true saying that if a man wants to be a pastor, he has a good ambition. For a pastor must be a good man whose life cannot be spoken against. Well, now there's 15, because I didn't mark that as one. That's, that's another one. That's, we'll find 15 then. He must be a good man whose life cannot be spoken against. Number two, he must have only one wife at a time. No, oh, no, that's the new translation. I'm sorry. Now, this one says he must have one wife. One wife. And I've had pastors say, that means one at a time. I've literally had pastors tell me, that means the pastor should have one wife at a time. And thirdly, he must be hardworking. Fourthly, thoughtful. Fifth, he should be orderly. Sixth, he should be full of good deeds. Seventh, 
He must enjoy having guests in his home. Eight, he must be a good Bible teacher. Nine, he must be a drinker. Uh, excuse me, he must, he, he must not be a drinker. <laughs> oh well, hallelujah. Uh, number ten, uh, he should not be quarrelsome. Number eleven, but he must be gentle and kind. And twelve, and not be one who loves money. Now, it, he shouldn't hate money either. You say, oh, now you're trying to hedge your bet. No, I'm not. You see, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. It means that that should not be the basis of his security. That should not be the thing he seeks after, craves, and desires. He must not be a lover of money. He must not be a hater of money. He must be wise in using money. Number 13, he must have a well-behaved family with children who obey quickly and quietly. There it is again. <clears throat> For if a man can't make his own little family behave, how can he help the whole church? Now, let's just stop right there and tell you something. I've had pastors say, well, I have been, I'm so busy, I don't have time to be with my children. You're too busy. Well, my wife doesn't agree with me in my correction of my children. Then get out of the ministry. What? That's right. Why? Because your family comes first. Well, I feel called of God in the ministry. My wife disagrees, and you aren't called in the ministry. What? That's right. Because you and your wife are one. And if he called your, you, he'd call your wife too. Now, I know this sounds very harsh sometimes, but I'm telling you something. God established the family before he established the office. And for any pastor to tell me that he, has, he lets his wife do the correcting, lets his wife take care of the kids, I want to tell you something. You just missed it, buddy. God did not call your wife to take that responsibility. The husband, as the pastor, is supposed to direct his wife and his children and teach them and instruct them in the things of the Lord and walk along, pray with them and encourage them and spend time with them. That's why there's many times, when I, when I first came to this church, I told this church, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, that my family comes before you. Now, you may think I should be out there every day and every night doing things, but my family is going to come before you. And I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, if I lose my wife, I'm not qualified to preach. If I lose my children in the, in the world, then I'm a lousy example and I shouldn't be preaching in the first place. Because the Word of God says my children to obey quickly and quietly, and I am to teach them and instruct them and know how to. If I can't do that, how am I going to direct you? Some people say, are you against women preachers? I said, of course not. If they're the husband of one wife and rule their house well, they can be one. That's all it says. The two requirements are rule their own house well, and many of them do that, but I've never seen one be the husband of one wife. That'll take you a while, but you'll probably get that. <laughs> but when it says here that it's very important for a pastor to rear his family properly, you wonder why... One denomination last year lost 1,254 pastors from their pulpit because of immorality. One denomination. You wonder why pastors are running off with women all over the place? Because the church has opened the door to this immorality and the pastor has put the church before the family and the families are being destroyed. Now I'm talking about one who is called of God. He cannot make excuses. If his, if his wife and family does not follow him, then get out of the pulpit until you get your life straightened out. Why? Because that's what it says. 
And you want to get a preacher mad, you tell him that sometimes. They'll tell you, oh, the reason my kids are so ornery is they play with the deacon's kids. What do you expect? Give me a break. The deacon's kids, it says the same things. They ought to be straightened up too. I remember when I went to the first church in Colorado, and I was up preaching one time, and the young people had gotten into the habit when the choir was all through, they would go up into the balcony and sit in the balcony, and they were up there punching each other and laughing and everything else. And right in the middle of the sermon, I stopped and went, young people. And boy, <laughs> And the parents started laughing down below. I said, I wouldn't laugh if I were you parents. I would be ashamed. Why would you allow your children to sit behind you in the balcony and act like a bunch of idiots up there while you're sitting down here thinking you're getting fed and you're losing your family? I said, I want your parents to go get your kids and bring them down here and make them sit with you. High school kids. Parents started looking at each other. I said, no, I'm going to wait. I'll wait right here until you go get your kids and bring them down here. They're sitting up there making all kinds of foolish things, doing all kinds of foolish things up there. You bring them down here right now. And some of them didn't go. I said, I, I, I got time. I'll wait. So finally, a couple of them started getting up, and the rest of them started going up there. And I saw Dad look around and go, Chico. I said, your dad said yes. Come on. And they came downstairs. Afterwards, they came up and said, man, that was embarrassing. I said, I know it was. I hope you would never have to have it happen again. But I said, if they do it again, I'll do it again. You ought to know where your kids are. Have them sit in front of you. So if they get out of line, I don't have to tell them. You tell them. Boy, they started sitting in front of their parents after that. So I just had the parents, I told the adults, I said, from now on, the first five rows on both sides are going to be empty until the choir's down. And the young people are coming down in the front rows. Parents, you go sit in the balcony and you can see them better. <laughs> well, who do you think you are? That's how I, that's why the pastor has to know how to take care of his children so you know how to deal with family. Dad, get in line. Do the right thing. Watch your kids. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility. Do it. But if your kids are running all over and getting into all kinds of problems and out drinking and smoking and running around as a pastor, what are you going to say to your congregation? Well, let me recommend to you about your children. You know, you've got to... You have to understand discipline and principles of rearing children before you can learn how to work with people in your church. But see, I told you, I never told my children what they had to do. I just gave them a choice. Now, you, you want to go outside and play? Yeah, as soon as you get your homework, you can go out and play. And there are people in this church, they'll say something to me. I'll say, well, according to the Word of God, if you do this, then you can do that. But if you don't do this, you can't do that. And some of them say, I don't like him telling me what to do. I didn't tell you what to do. I just gave you your choices. Choose what you want to do. Well, I don't like to be talked to like that. That's because you're in rebellion. You don't want to know what biblical principles are? Can't help you. My children always had the choice of obeying me or disobeying me and having to face God. And whatever punishment I decided they had to have for not obeying me. Parents, can I just interject this? Don't ever hesitate to correct your children and teach them and instruct them and make them obey you. They will not rise up to get angry at you and hate you later on. They'll love you. If you don't do it, they'll hate you. Children want boundaries. And it doesn't make any difference what all the rest of the people in the world are doing. If they're your kids, they don't do some things because you have standards in your home. You see? Because God's made you responsible for your children. God did not make me responsible for my neighbor's kids. If they want to look like absolute idiots, if they want to wear clothes that makes them look like a bum that didn't even make it, that's up to them. But my children are not going to do that. And they never were allowed to do that. Why? Because we, we're walking by a different drummer. We're not listening to what 
the homosexuals have to say to us and what the rebels have to say to us, what the rock musicians have to say to us about dress and hairstyle and all these things. They don't set the standard for us. You know, I finally got pressured enough that I cut off my sideburns way up here and everybody's relieved by that. I said, you know, if I'd have left them there for another few years, they'd have been back down there and I'd have been right all the time. But I couldn't care less about what the standards of the world are. I see some people with their hair clear down to here and then hair buzz clear off their head and then half of it are gone and a third of it gone and crisscrosses and lettering and everything all off the... Why? What are we doing? Who are we following? I've been in homes lately where I have seen boys that are 12 years of age with almost nude women on the walls. Great big pictures of nude women on the wall. And the parents talking about the things of the Lord. I mean, they're dumber than a stump. Fourteen, the pastor must not be a new Christian because he might be proud of being chosen so soon and pride comes before fall. In parentheses, the living Bible says Satan's downfall is an example. And then number 15, also he must be well spoken of by the people outside the church, those who aren't Christians, so that Satan can't trap him with many accusations and leave him without freedom to lead his flock. The basic thing is, if you and I, if you and I cannot do in our home, produce in our home what we should produce, why export it? I mean, don't do as I, as you say. Don't expect people to do what you say. They are going to do what you do. Someone says if you have a smoking preacher, you'll have a drinking congregation. And it's the standard that's set by the pastor and his family that's going to set the tone of the church. What would you do if I started coming to church here in wild clothes, shorts on, and all this stuff? You know, before long, there'd be people coming here in bikinis. And I'm kidded and ribbed a lot about the fact that I've always got my tie on, always got my suit coat on. Somewhere along the line, we've got to show that. You know, if you go to work for some companies, they insist on suit and tie and dress. Nobody says a word about it. That's what they require. Disney, you've got to have your hair cut a certain way. You've got to wear a certain clothes. Oh, yes, we'll do that. I think there's a certain dignity about the Lord's work. And I always encourage the men. A lot of times I kid them about it in the back room. I say, who's got their sport coat on today and wants to lead in prayer this morning? You know, uh, to, to let them know, you know, we want to put on a good presentation to people that coming to church and worshiping God is a very important thing in our life. Now, I know that sometimes, some people, and I have to ask forgiveness sometimes because a lot of times I see children doing something out of line and I say, hey, it's automatic. I always did it with my kids. If they were doing something wrong and looking and getting into something, I could be talking to you and I'd just, like that, and they'd turn around and they knew that was it twice and they'd had it. And I feel badly, and I, and I wish my children were being raised again from little up right here in this church. They were almost raised by the time I got here. But you know, I actually had someone say to me, oh, we want you to marry a real young woman when you get remarried now so you can start another whole family and show us how you did it. I said, I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> and I know it works. I want to, I got a young woman, that's right. I, I, want, I want to tell you one thing right now. Some of you don't know me very well, but I will tell you this much, and I thank God for this. What I'm trying to teach you, I know works. I had two children that were very different in personality. But never for 30 minutes in that whole time they went through what was called teenage years, which we never had, 
Never for 30 minutes did they rebel against us as parents. They were always with us serving the Lord. Now, you know I've actually had people leave this church because of that fact. Oh, you're goody, goody kids. I says, give me a break. Are you saying that if they went out and got on drugs and went out and got involved in sexual immorality and so forth, then you'd feel more at ease? I'm sorry, then you better leave. But what I'm trying to tell you, I told you, we never had teenagers. Our kids were 12 plus 1, 12 plus 2, 12 plus 3, because teenagers are brats. And we didn't want any brats in our house. So we got all the way through the teenage years without having any brats in our house. But if you walk with your children and teach your children and love your children and correct your children and instruct your children, mom and dad together, not one or the other, never divided, they will come up and they will serve the Lord. It works. All I'm saying is, Paul the Apostle said, these are not suggestions, these are requirements for a pastor. I talked to a couple some time ago who knew this teaching and today they're attending a church where the pastor, I knew him before when he was married and he and his first wife were fighting and scrapping right in public. I mean, we were having church fellowships together and they would argue and fight with each other right in public and finally she left him. And he turned right around and married another woman and now he's got a church and these people are sitting there. And this couple's children are starting to have trouble in their marriages now. I said, what did you expect? You opened them up to a spirit of immorality, sexual immorality, when you put them under a leader who has those spirits in him, who totally rejects what the Word of God says, and because I've got this gift, I've got this talent, I've got this ability, I can preach. Now, please understand, this isn't Joe Webb's message. I just read to you what Paul the Apostle said. He's saying, if you can't live it at home, don't export it. These are the requirements of one who is called into the ministry. Now, yes, there are those who have a different Christ, a different gospel, and a different spirit. And they'll go on just like nothing's ever happened, but their judgment is true and sure. Why? Because it's contrary to what the Word of God says. So all the further I'm going to get tonight. There's enough there for you to chew on for a week. Fifteen requirements for a pastor. The same portion of Scripture is over in Titus. Starts all over again. Doesn't say he can speak in tongues. Doesn't say people go down under the power when he touches him. Doesn't say that the whole crowd just, he goes, and the whole crowd falls. It doesn't say that. It says character. Integrity. Honesty. Reputation. Those are the things you have to look for when you look for a leader. Let me tell you, when I say those things, it scares me because I realize the responsibility is on one that's in leadership. I would much rather follow than lead. But all you have to be is one step ahead to lead. You know that, don't you? And the reason probably I know what some of you are going through because I've gone through most of it myself. If there's a ditch to fall into, if there's a block to stumble over, I've probably done it. Then have to cry out and ask the Lord to help me. But may God help us have wisdom to know where we go and who we follow in the days ahead because it's going to have everything to do with what happens to our children and our children's children. I've used the example before of a pastor in Kentucky years ago who invited a youth pastor in who had divorced, gotten married, and after his honeymoon divorced the girl. Went away to Bible college, came back, and the pastor wanted to hire him as the youth pastor. One family objected. 
And that young man still came into the church, and this couple said, I will not have our children under this young man. He's living in adultery. Pastor said, oh, no, that was just, they annulled that marriage and all this garbage. Today, except for that one couple's two children who did not submit to that man, every other couple that I know of in that church today are divorced and remarried. That church opened the church up to a spirit of divorce and remarriage. Spirit of divorce, I should say. Very important that we know that those, the Word of God says that we should know them well that labor among us. Be careful who you have lay hands on you. You can transfer spirits if you submit yourself to someone else and let them begin to pray for you and pray for an anointing on you and all this stuff. You can. If you aren't careful, you can pick up bugaboos that you don't want. Crown of glory. We'll talk a little bit more about that next Sunday morning. Father, I feel many times like the Apostle Paul did when he said, I fear after having preached this gospel that I become a castaway. And that's why, Lord, I told you the day that you called me in the ministry that I could not even respond with an affirmative answer unless you promised me that you'd never leave me and you'd never forsake me and that you'd go before me and behind me and over and under me and around me and in me and through me. And Lord, I don't see a whole lot of the nine gifts operating all the time in my life, but by the grace of God, I pray that at least to be the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I pray that you'll give wisdom to every person here tonight that in the days ahead, wherever you might lead them, wherever they might be, that the first thing that they'll require is that they'll not submit to anyone unless they fulfill these requirements in their lives. Then they'll know they're safe and they're protected. And yet they'd still have to watch and make sure they only follow them as they follow Christ. Father, I just pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding as Christians that we'll not be stupid will not do dumb things that will get our families into trouble in the days ahead. That will be totally submitted to you and obedient to your word. And that you'll be honored and glorified in all that we do and say in Jesus' precious and holy name we do ask it. Amen. Now we want to invite all of you to come to our home for time of refreshment and fellowship. God bless you. You are dismissed. I have been speaking for some time now on the subject when the believer's books are audited and no one likes to have their books audited, but every one of us as believers, of course the unbelievers are going to have their books audited too, and their works are going to be judged in the final day according to God's word, but the believers, the scripture says that there is going to be the judgment seat of Christ eventually where every believer is going to have to be judged for the works done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Anything that has not been unput under the blood of Christ, repented of, we'll have to answer for in that day. It does not affect our salvation. We're saved by faith through grace. The evidence of our salvation is that we obey. Anyone says they're saved and does not obey God is a liar and the truth is not in him, the Bible says. But when we obey the Lord, in that day, not just obedience is important, but the motive for which we obey God is going to be taken into consideration. That's why a person can be very, very busy and still not doing anything that's going to give them a reward in the days ahead because of their motive. It may be for self-aggrandizement. Maybe for uh, they, they want the popularity. They want to be told how wonderful they are. Whatever it might be, their motive is wrong. Jesus said that if you 
uh, give, give to where your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's giving, and great will be your reward in heaven. He said of the Pharisees when they stood up and raised their hands in the public and prayed, or when they gave publicly and told everybody how much they gave, he said, they've already got their reward. They don't need one in eternity. They wanted the praise of men, and that's what they got. Well, we have been talking about the different crowns that the believers are going to receive in eternity, and the one we've been talking about the last week was the crown of glory. And there were some who came and said, well, you kind of rushed through that crown of glory idea with uh, all the different requirements, because the crown of glory is to be given to whom? Who? Faithful ministers. Those who have been called of God into a ministry, and they have been faithful. It doesn't say those that have been popular or successful or dynamic or charismatic. It says it's for those who are faithful to do what God has called them to do that they shall receive a crown of glory. And last week we read through 1 Timothy concerning the requirements, basic requirements, of a one who's called to be a bishop or a minister or an elder, a leader in the church. Now, it's very important we understand this in this day and age because let me tell you something. The world is looking at the church today and they don't like what they see. They're very quick to be able to perceive what's phony. I've always told parents, your, your kids can, can spot a phony a mile away. You don't have to tell your kids whether you're real or not. They can tell it and they know it in an instant. And that's why a lot of parents are very defensive today in most churches. They'd rather have the young people over in another part of the church so they don't see their parents raising their hands and saying hallelujah and then during the week screaming and shouting and fighting and doing all those things that they shouldn't be doing. But the same thing is true of the world. They may not know much about doctrine, but they sure know much about character, about what is supposed to be required. You know, the, the world many times holds a higher standard for the church than the church does. And one of the tragedies taking place in these last days, we've had a lot of pastors who call themselves pastors, but the evidence of their life does not manifest the calling of God in their life or obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, I said last week that, first of all, that the man who is called of God, is, is, he is a man. He's not supernatural. He puts his pants on like everyone else. He's not an angel. Uh, he's a called man. He does not do it because he wants to necessarily. He does it because he feels the, the call of God on his life. He cannot get away from it. There are many in the Old Testament who said, Lord, if it's possible, I'm never going to say another word. I want out of this. This is too much pressure. God had to deal with him. When a man is called, the calling of God is without repentance. And he's, because of that calling, he's not only a man, but he's a called man. He's a responsible man, I said. The Bible says that when a man is put in a position of authority, he has to answer for your soul. Submit to them that have to answer for your soul, that they might do it with joy, the Word of God said. Thirdly, I said he was a family man. And I brought, I said last week, 15 points. I studied it again, and I found 18 points. 18 different things that are requirements for a pastor if he's going to be biblical, biblically right. In the ministry. Now let me tell you something, this is not fun for me to have to do. How many of you like to go in and find all the th reasons why the Lord needs to deal with you in other areas of your life? And as I look at this, I say, Lord, these are, these are tough. It doesn't make a difference whether they're tough or not. God's Word says this is the responsibility. And I, I say that because today most people just say, oh, they've got a beautiful church. Oh, they've got some nice people in the church. But that's not the prerequisite by which we seek a church. We seek a shepherd. One that we can follow as he follows Christ. Now, I don't care where you go. If you just go and get a preacher or a pastor that you can hire and fire, I want to tell you something. You're out of order biblically. You have to find a shepherd. And Paul very clearly lays down the different requirements of a shepherd. Turn to 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter. The third chapter, I'm sorry. 
First Timothy, the third chapter. I'm sorry. What am I doing here? I want, first of all, let me read to you first. Stay there at First Timothy. I want to read to you First Peter 5. That's why I was in First Peter 5. First Peter 5 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief, chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now then, 1 Timothy... First Timothy 3. My Bible's about falling apart here. I'm going to have to, one of these days, get another Bible. I've got it already. I just need to transfer over. How many of you know it's tough to go to a new Bible? And you've got everything marked, and you know where everything is. You just look, and you find the color of the verse, and you know right where it is. Uh, but I'm getting places I have a hard time reading my Bible anymore. First Timothy 3, beginning with the first verse. By the way, nothing is said in these requirements here concerning the man's love for God or his, or his um, companion, communion with God or um, his piety or any of those things. They're, they're just taken for granted. If you're called of God, you're going to have those elements in your life. But it's talking about moral characteristics of a person who's to be a pastor. Let me tell you something. We need to hear it in this day and age when the churches, the pastors are falling out of the pulpit one after another today and people are in total consternation and confusion trying to figure out what's going on. We've got to go hire us another one. We've got to go hire us another one. I told you last week that one man told me in the few years he's been in this one church, he said, we fired two preachers already. We got us a third one now. I'll tell you, he's going to keep hiring and firing. God's not going to send him a shepherd. He's going to send them hirelings that can be hired and fired. Very important for them to understand. The first thing it says there in verse, verse uh, 2, the bishop must be blameless. Now, blameless means a good, have a good moral reputation. And uh, I said many of them are failing in that area today and become disqualified. And yet there's a denomination I heard that's now thinking, considering seriously, of making a new amendment to their constitution and bylaws that says that the men who have fallen, and gone, have fallen into adultery and have remarried uh, should now be brought back into the ministry after two years because it's a waste of manhood of manpower in, the, in their denomination. I'm talking about a strong, fundamental, holiness, Pentecostal denomination. You know, it, it, with doctors and attorneys today, there are requirements, moral requirements for doctors and attorneys, and I know some of them seem to get away with a whole bunch of it, but once they get before that board, and they can be disbarred very quickly if it's proven that they're doing something that's, that's not according to the... Uh, commitment that they made when they took the bar exam and were, were uh, sworn into their office. And if that be so of just a doctor or an attorney, how much more so of one who's called to be a, child of, or a, a servant of Jesus Christ? The second thing it says there, <clears throat> blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, it's interesting here that the, the Greek construction here says one wife's husband. Now, that's different. That means he doesn't have to be married, but if ever he is married... He's one wife's husband. 
it means he has nothing to do with other women. Once he makes a commitment and a choice, there is no sexual promiscuity whatsoever. From now on, I made a quality decision to cleave to this woman and to this woman only so long as we both live. He says if a man is going to be in the ministry, he must be a one-woman man. In another place where it talks about the elderly widows who are widows indeed to be taken into the church, they should be one-man women. Now, that does not mean if a woman, if a husband dies or a wife dies, you can't marry again. It means when you're under that covenant, you're under that covenant for life and committed to that covenant for life. That's a requirement. That is not a suggestion. That's not a preference. That's a requirement that any husband, any pastor, be a one-woman man. Now say amen or oh me. <clears throat> Thirdly, it says that he is to be vigilant. Vigilant here in the Greek, according to different commentators, means alert, attentive, watchful, cautious, but it also means he is not affected by the fads and the, and the fashions and the political correctness that may come into our society. He's only affected by one thing, and that is the Word of God. He knows what his calling is. He knows what his responsibility is. And he couldn't care less what anyone else has to say. He is willing at any price to do what he was called to do and to be alert about it. He's not flighty. He's not up here and down here and over here, and you never know where you're going to find him. The next one says that he is sober. Now, another, in other places in the New Testament, that same word is translated temperate. And uh, that doesn't just mean sober from intoxicants, but it means level-headed, thoughtful, uh, mature. Uh, there are some uh, uh, other verses. Look, let me just look at another verse, a couple of verses with you. And one is in First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, so you get a little idea what, the, what he's talking about here. First Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 8 says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And verse 8 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Uh, so it means that we're constantly ready for battle, to do battle. Uh, a pastor should constantly have the armor of God on, be ready to do battle wherever he is and whatever the situation, and uh, not carried away by other winds of doctrine. Another one is in First Tim Second Timothy, the fourth chapter. Second Timothy, chapter four. Second Timothy, chapter four, and verse five. Paul says to Timothy, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Watch thou in all things. Be alert, be sober, be temperate in all things. Uh, and it says that we're not to be uh, carried away by false doctrine. In, in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Timothy, and verse 4, he says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. A pastor does not get caught up in all these little fads and all these false doctrines that come along. He comes in and analyzes them and moves on. Now, again, let me say that when a pastor analyzes doctrine, he only has one source to go to, and that's not 35 different commentaries. It's to find out what the true meaning of the Word of God really is. It's not to find out what doctor such and such says about it. <clears throat> and philosophies come along. I'm told that your treasury agents never are allowed to look at counterfeit money and all the time they're being trained. <clears throat> they never see a piece of counterfeit money during their training period. 
They're only allowed to look at the true money. Study the true money completely to where they know it inside out. They know everything about the, the true money. The reason for that is once they know what the real true money is, they can instantly spot that which is false. And that's exactly what a pastor should do. He does not go around studying all the false cults. He studies the Word of God so when come, someone comes along and says such and such, you say, that's not true because I know what the Word says. That's contrary to what the Word says here. That's contrary to what the Word says there. Remember I told you that little Rolodex that's in my head? I, I'm amazed sometimes myself when somebody will say something to me, how that little Rolodex will whip around and out will pop a verse and a red flag will go up and say, no, that's not true. How do you know it's not true? Because the Word says this. Yes, but this verse over here, yes, we can't compare that verse because this verse says this. And you see, truth never has to be apologized for. And a pastor must always be sober and vigilant in standing up against false doctrine that comes in, so you're not swept away by every wind of doctrine that comes along. The fifth thing says that he should be of good behavior. Now that's talking about the quality of his character. He should be orderly, he should be mannerly, spiritually and mentally, by the way. I've seen some guys that have been so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good, hallelujah, glory to God, praise the Lord, you know, just jumping all over the place. And I think it's nice to praise the Lord, but I, I think you ought to do it with your feet on the ground. But if you do jump in the air when you land, walk straight. And so it's talking about here of good behavior, quality of character, uh, and his daily habits. Uh, I think it's very important if a person's in the ministry that their daily habits should be such that are not obnoxious to others. I've seen some people who have, some pastors who have, well, I've traveled down through the years in evangelism. Well, let me tell you something. There's some of them out there that I just walk away shaking my head saying, God, I'm grateful that they're your servants and not mine. Because if they're mine, I'm afraid I would I'd use a boot on them, try to get them straightened out. They just do some of the craziest things in the world. But again, the real tragedy is that people follow them and get into problems themselves. I know of a young man in the Colorado years ago who was in, being, he felt like he was called to ministry. And he was so obnoxious. He would say the most insulting things to people. He would put people down so hard that they would walk away crying, and he thought he was doing it just being smart. And I never did find out whether that man ever landed with his feet on the ground. And I want to tell you something. He injured many people's souls. And so Paul says it's very important that a person be of good behavior and, and, and a gentleman, not slovenly in his appearance. I believe that when, we, when we're out, if, if somebody has to put on nice clothes to go out and represent IBM, why shouldn't we represent Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not talking about you have to have a suit on all the time. But I think when people see us, they ought to know that we do know what soap is. And we do know what it is to, to be clean. And, and Paul says that being of good behavior includes that. Then the next thing says they are given to hospitality. Talks about impartation to other people. Someone that's in the ministry has to learn that it's not take all you can get, it's give all you can give, imparting to others and blessing others. It means open-heartedness, it means open-handedness, and it means being a lover of strangers. This uh, missionary that's coming, I've never met him. Talked to him over the phone. He was thrilled with what God uh, had done in the, the book. And uh, uh, he said, I'm going to be in Florida in, in September. And the man has 150-some missionaries working under him. He used to be a banker here in the United States. But I, I told him, you come and we'll fellowship and we'll get together and we'll, uh, we'll just get to know each other more and more in the days ahead. Because I believe the man's doing something. But back in that day, it was so important because many Christians were being chased all over the country and being driven, and their, their possessions were being taken away from them, when they came into town, they tried to find another Christian brother or sister that would take them in. 
And a pastor, one of the things of a pastor, they said, now when you're looking for a pastor, don't find some guy that says, hey, go down the street to Brothers Jones and stay there. You can't stay here. He said, find those that will open their home to uh, strangers and bring them in and minister to them. And many times give them something because they have had everything taken away from them. That was one of the signs being given to hospital. Look at Romans 12, 13 with me. Romans 12, 13. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Paul the Apostle. <clears throat> we can actually go back to verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our, on, on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another, with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. What? Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. That's one of the signs and one of the requirements of a pastor. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Let brotherly love continue, verse 1, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Very important for a pastor to be hospitable. The seventh requirement is apt to teach. Now that apt to teach in the Greek is one word. And it means the ability to enlighten darkened minds or to transmit ideas and principles. It's nice to have a person that, is, that has all the other qualities that's required here, but if they can't teach, they're going to be wasting everybody's time because when believers come together, they're to learn and be able to have ideas transmitted to them. And I want to tell you something. It has to be a gift from the Lord. You might have natural ability, but God has to give you the ability to know what to say and when to say it and to whom. It is so exciting sometimes to be up here preaching and all of a sudden God just shuts his notes down and says, say this and say that, say this. And you say, Lord, I'd like to get on with my message that I've been studying all week. Say this, say that. Why am I spending so much time on this one point, Lord? Say this. And I, I, you know, it's, it's just one of the most helpless feelings in the world, but it's exciting because someone else will come up and say, how I thank God you said thus and such and thus and such. That's exactly what I was asking God to speak to my heart on today. You think, what am I, chopped liver? You know, God has to do it through you, and you have to have the ability for God to speak to you and then say what he says to you and do it in such a way that people can learn from it. One of the requirements is to apt to teach. And then, not given to wine. Horinos means wine-bibber, tippler, one who sits long beside the wine. Paul says that all drinking is dangerous and should be avoided. But it's interesting how all down through the history of God's Word, it's warned against alcoholic in bibbing. I know of pastors personally who were good preachers, 
far as speakers are concerned, powerful uh, effect on congregations. But I know one of them that uh, they found out after a while that he had a, his own uh, bar down in the basement. His wife didn't even know. I mean, she, they've been married for 25 years. She didn't know he drank. It reminds me of the fellow that said, the woman said she didn't know her husband drank. She had been married to him for 30 years and never knew he drank a drop until he came home sober one, one day. But <clears throat> this, this pastor, his wife would go to work and he would go down the basement and soak up and then he, I don't know what he did to get rid of get it off his breath, but he was drinking for years. She found that in the basement. And of course that brought on other sins in his life. But Paul the Apostle says that we're not to be given to wine Look at some verses with me in the Old Testament to show you how God has stated this all down through the years. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. God is speaking here to Aaron, the high priest. Verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. In Numbers, the sixth chapter, Numbers chapter 6, where it talks about the Nazarites, a special sect or a group that had dedicated themselves to the Lord. You remember Jesus was a Nazarite because he came from Nazareth. But there was a Nazarite group in the Old Testament in Numbers, the sixth chapter, verses one through four, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husks. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, it talks about John the Baptist, when God called John the Baptist from the womb. Luke 1. Luke 1 and verse 15 speaking about the child that was going to be born. Uh, verse 14, Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter, an interesting portion concerning the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness, before they went into the promised land. Deuteronomy, chapter 29, and by the way, may I tell you the reason it's so important is because uh, as believers today, we're in the wilderness getting ready to go into the promised land now. When we, when we leave this, this earth, we're going into the promised land. And this was the rule that God gave to Israel while they're in the promised land. Deuteronomy 29, 5 and 6. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxed, waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. Proverbs chapter 20. I hope nobody's saying, well, he's quit preaching gone to Midland. Proverbs chapter 20. Verse 
Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. If you think you can get away with it, it says you're not wise. Stay away from it. Proverbs 21, 17. 21, 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. So if you want to be poor, take it in. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 32, tells the end result of it. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth, it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When, I shall, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. That's the end result of those who are involved in alcoholic drinking. Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31, verses 3 and 4. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. How many of you know we're a royal generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? And he says it's not for us to be involved in that. In Romans, the 13th chapter, Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> Thirteen, thirteen. <clears throat> Paul the Apostle speaking just to the believers in, in the church of Rome. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians, the fifth chapter. God doesn't put these things in here lightly. They're here for a reason. And he says that one who is to be a, a receive a crown of glory should not be given to wine. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And if you'll go over to verse 21, it says, Envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have to also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul to Timothy said there was one area where a person could receive alcoholic beverages if he's in the ministry. And that's found in 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 23. Timothy was having problems with his stomach. And Paul says, Drink no, wa no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for the, uh, thine often infirmities. How many of you remember the story of the family that lived down south and he shot into the ground and oil came up out of the ground and they moved to Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills, 
Remember Grandma always making her medicine for that little still? Paul says the only time that a person needs medicine, and by the way, much of our medicine that we take today has alcohol in it. But that's the only use that I find in the Scripture where it's recommended that we take it if we have a physical affliction, but not otherwise. I don't have time to go on, but uh, tonight is talking about not a striker. Let me tell you something. God had to deal in my life in that area. Not a striker. And uh, I want to share with you the importance here. I wish I could emphasize it strongly enough. When we place ourselves under the authority of anyone in the ministry who does not fulfill these requirements, we open ourselves up to the same areas of difficulty that they have. If a man is promiscuous, you'll find his church... The old saying is if the, if the pastor smokes, the congregation drinks. Because you open yourself up to all sorts of problems. Now, again, it's so important for us to understand this in this day and age because people do not stay in one area very long. They shift from place to place. And I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many people call me and say, Pastor, where can we go to church? Every church we go to, this pastor's doing this or the officers are doing that. And, you know, I said, isn't it amazing that people are suddenly becoming aware that there is a responsibility on the part of those in, in office to hold a standard following Christ so that we can follow them. But there are many groups today that are out there jumping and shouting and rolling around and all they say, oh no, just love Jesus, just love one another, just forget all the rest of that. No, this is the requirement. That's not a suggestion or a preference. That's a requirement. And I feel it very heavily upon myself. That's why I said it's a lot easier to follow than to lead. But the most important thing is the reason you have someone that you're supposed to be able to follow is so that they can find out, they, they can see that it works. Christianity works. Now I want to tell you something. If you've never known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never made a commitment. When I say Lord and Savior, it does not mean that you believe in Jesus. Satan believes in Jesus and trembles, and he's going to hell. He's going into the lake of fire. Genuine Christianity is that if thou shalt confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master and believe in your heart that he really was raised from the dead and that he's alive forevermore and that he is ready to forgive you of your sins if you'll repent of them, he'll come into your life and change your life. Then you can begin to experience genuine Christianity. Now until that happens, I remember before that happened, I was sat in church, I was so miserable, if my head itched, I scratched my foot. I mean, every, I was just turned inside. I was just so terribly torn up inside because I knew that I, although I believed Jesus was the Son of God, I believed he died on the cross, I believed he rose again, I had never made him Lord of my life. And I knew that if I were to die at that moment, I'd go to hell knowing all those things. And I invited Jesus Christ into my life and asked him to forgive me and put my life together. That was 43 years ago. And it still works. I want to ask you, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? Very important for you to understand and know what it means to be born again of the Spirit of God. Would you just bow your heads in prayer, please? Father, I thank you that you call. The Bible says that you have placed in the church 
apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, for the working of the, the edifying of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Those that can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, we know, first of all, Lord, we have to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and put our trust in him completely, asking him to forgive us and cleanse us from all our sins and make us to be his child. Lord Jesus, we believe you did die on the cross. But what's more important, we believe that you have now sent your Holy Spirit to knock at our heart's door and ask us to open our heart's door so that you can come in and dwell in our hearts. You said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and will open unto me, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Lord, you want to live in our hearts and become Lord of our lives. I pray this morning that none will let another day go by but what, first of all, they'll give their lives completely to you. Lord, the, the real problem they have is not the problem they think they have. The real problem we have is the problem that we've not settled our heart relationship with you so that we can put our trust in you and let you work out everything else. You said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. I pray, Father, this morning that there, if there be any here who do not have the assurance that if they're to die this moment, they'd go to heaven. If they don't know that for sure, that this morning they'll say, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I repent of every sin. I repent of all my past sins. I turn away from it. I will not continue in my sin. I'll ask the Lord to set me free from it. I want to make him Lord of my life this morning. And Father, I know you said if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. If we call upon you, you'll in no wise cast us out. You've invited us to come. I pray this morning that there'll be those that will. May I ask this morning if there might be one that say, Pastor, I don't have that assurance in my heart that if I were to die right now, that I would go to be with the Lord, that I am a born-again Christian, that I know what it is to have Christ as my Lord and Master. But I want to know that this morning. Pray for me. Anyone? I want to be born of God's Spirit. Yes. Anyone else? I want to know beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has come into my life and changed my life. I want to know that I'm saved this morning. Anyone else? Anyone else this morning? You see, the wonderful part is I don't have to tell you if you're saved or not. You know. The Spirit of God that's in me is also telling you whether you're right in a right relationship with Him this morning. Anyone else this morning say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm a Christian, but I want to be sure. Pray for me. Yes, God bless you. Yes, I see that hand. I want to be sure this morning that I know the Lord in my heart. Anyone else this morning? I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. How many this morning say, Pastor, if that's what's required of those in leadership, then I know I need to be heading in that direction, and there's areas God's speaking to my heart about this morning. And I'm committing those areas to Him and asking Him to do a work in my life where I'll be what I'm supposed to be. Yes, God bless you. Anyone else raise their hand and say that? Yes. I see areas that I'm going to have to work on. You see, God brings us into that area. We, we have to walk up to that. No novice is even supposed to be put in the ministry. Yes, God bless you. I see that hand. Areas, Lord, I see that need to be dealt with this morning. Anyone else? Yes, God bless you. Father, I thank you for these hands that have been raised. It means that your spirit is working in their lives. 
And I'm so thankful you said that if we will confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away, and we stand on the word of God. Based upon the word of God is right now, right where they're sitting, they say, Lord Jesus, I see areas in my life that need to be changed. And then, Lord, as they name those areas to you and acknowledge that it's disobedience, it's sin, it's areas that, where you're not in charge and you're not in control, but right now they say, Lord Jesus, by an act of my will, I give that area to you, your authority. You take over that area. I can't fight it, but I resist it in Jesus' name, and I ask you to take charge of that area of my life. Lord, cause them to be able to mature in the things of the Spirit, that they'll be everything that they know you want them to be in the days ahead. And for those that raised their hand and said they're not sure they're saved this morning, I pray right now, Lord, right where they are, they'll pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, and I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. I acknowledge that I've come short of what I ought to be. I've broken your commandments and I have no hope outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just pray it that way. I believe Christ died for my sin. I believe he shed his blood for my sin. I acknowledge my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I repent of my sin. I know the word says that the, the fornicator, the idolater, the adulterer, the effeminate, the abuser of himself of mankind, none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. I repent of all those areas of my life in Jesus' name. And I ask the Lord Jesus to come in right now and become Lord and Master of my life. I want to be born into the family of God this Sunday, September 1994. I want to know that I'm a child of God. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior right now. Father, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me with your blood. I give my life to you without reservation. I will obey your word, and I'll walk uprightly before you as best I know how. I'll fellowship with God's people to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. In Christ's name. You prayed that this morning. I know the Lord heard your prayer. I want to give you an opportunity. We're going to stand now and sing. First Timothy chapter 3. For those of you that weren't here this morning, we were talking about when the Christians' books are audited, about the judgment seat of Christ, and the rewards that the Lord has prepared for those who serve Him faithfully while they're here on earth. We will be rewarded as sons and servants. This morning we got up through well, let's see. No striker. Right? Got to that. That's right. Just got through not given to wine. And I hope nobody had to change their diet for lunch. But uh, we want to go now to the next point. Uh, let me read that uh, for those of you that weren't here. It says, this is a true saying, First uh, Timothy 3.1. If a man desire the office of a bishop or oversight, 
he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine. Now that we covered all those this morning. Now we want to go on to the next ones here, where it says no striker. Now it's interesting how several of these overlap. Several of these different phrases overlap in their context of uh, behavior. We talked about moral character is what Paul says is required if one is going to be in leadership. And that word no striker means not the fighting kind. One who never fights. He's not quick-tempered. He doesn't go around with a chip on his shoulder. And I've told you before, if you find someone with a chip on their shoulder, it's only evidence that there's wood higher up. So... uh, the, a preacher, a pastor, or an evangelist is not to go around with a chip on his shoulder, but he's to have a quiet and a gentle spirit. And I want to tell you something. Before I became a Christian, you would not have wanted to know me because if I was known for anything at all, it was, I was known for a violent temper. Very much anger inside of me, having been uh, beaten up and beaten up and beaten up when I was smaller, I vowed I was going to get even with all of them, and I went to work as hard as I could to build myself up so I could get even. And I went around, I was like an accident wait, looking for a place to happen, waiting to find somebody. And God had to deal with that with me on that. Uh, of course, I'm not, I, I thank God that uh, there have been people said, don't you ever get angry anymore? Yes, once in a while I do. Someone said the other day, the only time they ever saw me get angry was one time when I was ministering in deliverance here and one spirit told me it wasn't going to come out. And he said they'd never seemed to get so my face gets so red, and I said, I beg your pardon, you will come out in Jesus' name, and it did come out. But that's called righteous indignation. That's not anger. When you rise up against the power of darkness that tries to deny that we have the authority in Jesus Christ. But I have known of pastors, I've read of pastors in recent years who have had knocked down dragouts and actually punched people in their congregation. And uh, now I can understand how in the flesh that can happen. There are a lot of people where the tendency in the natural is to say, God, don't worry about this, and I'll take care of this one myself. And uh, they let the flesh go, and they do what they feel like they ought to want to do. But one of the things that I I appreciate so much when I was in the Alliance School, they talked about dying out to self, what they call sanctification. And someone gave an illustration one time that when we got to heaven and walked around heaven, that they thought that when they saw Joshua, they'd see a man with medals hanging all the way down to the floor because of all the battles he had won and all the victories he had accomplished. And then they said, you know, I suddenly realized that that, I'd have to look for Joshua. He would probably be kind of slinking around heaven with just plain garb on, and you'd have to ask where he was because when you come up to him, you could say, what's your name? And he'd say, Joshua. Oh, not not Joshua, the son of none. Yes, I am. Joshua, tell me about the wonderful battles you won. And he would have to come back and say, I didn't win any battles. I didn't even fight any battles. The Lord fought all the battles for me. All I had to do was obey his word, and he fought the battles for me. And they emphasize the fact that you and I don't have to fight. All we have to do is yield to the Lord. Remember when the men came against Moses? He fell flat on his face before God, and God was standing behind him. Suddenly Moses wasn't in front of him, and they could see the presence of God there, and they began to tremble all over. And when you come into spiritual leadership, you have to learn that God will fight your battles for you. You don't have to fight them at all. You don't have to argue. You just simply have to say what you believe God tells you to say and let it go there. Now, let me tell you something. I have lived long enough to know that when I tell somebody that I feel this is what God says, something doesn't usually happen overnight. 
But I'll guarantee you, I've lived long enough to find out sooner or later, chickens come home to roost. You sow to the flesh, it will come back on you, and it's terrible to see what happens. See, if the devil allowed it, I mean, if, if it happened overnight, people say, whoa, I've got to get back, and the devil knows that. So he takes his time and lets you get far enough away so there's no connection between what you did here and what happened over there so that you can't be made alert. He literally lets you go to sleep. But let me tell you something. When the pastor comes to you and says, this is what I believe God is telling me in my spirit that needs to be done about this, please don't ignore it because he doesn't want to say that. I, I had someone just remind me today that some time ago I was walking out the door here and got out front. And, you know, there's nothing more humbling to me than when God tells me to do something and I don't have the least idea why I'm doing it, but I just try to be obedient. And I had to go up to them and say, Brother, I don't know what's going on, but God just told me whatever you're doing, stop it and don't move. Don't move. And I turned and walked away and I... I don't know why I had to say that, but I had to say it. They came back later and said, oh, boy, we were all ready to you know, move to another part of the country, and we'd been quietly going and checking this out and checking that out. And, and you know, I, I thought, God, you're so wonderful. I mean, I had no idea why you had me say it. And I could have said, well, Lord, I don't understand what I was supposed to, why I'm supposed to say that and not said it. But the longer you're in the, walking with the Lord, the more you realize you don't have to understand it. You just have to say, yes, Lord, what's the, question, what's the command? Tell me what you want me to do now. Yes, Lord, whatever it is, yes, I'll do it. And you don't have to fight your battles. So one that's in leadership is not a fighter, not a striker, not one that wants to get on with it with his fists. The next thing is not need, greedy of filthy lucre. Now let me say again, pastors are not hired. Hirelings are hired. Pastors are not hired. Pastors are supported. God calls men into a ministry and calls men and women to support that ministry. Now, let me tell you the difference. If your pastor is hired, you can fire him. You tell him when to get up, when to go to bed, when to make this call, when to make that call. I had a church in Minnesota years ago come over, send some men over and say, we want you to become pastor of our church. And it was a fast-growing church. And I said, well, talk to me about it. I, I really don't think that I'm interested, but I'll be glad to talk to you about it. And they said, well, and they started going down the line. We want you to be in the office at 8 o'clock in the morning. We want you to study until 11 o'clock in council. And then at noon you can have a break. And they, went, they had my schedule all the way through the whole day, clear into the evening every day of the week. And uh, I said, that's what you're expecting of your pastor. And they said, yes. I said, well, uh, will you get upset if the Lord awakens me at 2 in the morning and has me go to prayer without having that on your schedule? What do you mean? I said, well, you know, I, I have never in all my life had anyone tell me when to get up and when to go to bed. I have the Lord do that for me. And I've never had to have anybody push me because usually I'm up before most people would have me get up anyway. And I usually go to bed later than some people do, but I many times get up in the middle of the night and pray and read the Word and study and so forth, but that's not in your schedule there. I said, you know, you really don't need a pastor. You need to hire a clerk in your office and call them a pastor and let them be your secretary and do the things you want them to do. You see, because I may, you may tell me I should make 35 calls a week, but one week God tells me I'm supposed to go over and witness to one person and minister to one family all week. Now, how in the world am I going to do that if I've got 30 calls I'm supposed to make that week? And there have been times when I was supposed to call over here and God says, don't call there, but go over here. Now, how am I going to fit that in if you're going to set my schedule up so rigidly? You see, what you're trying to do is hire a preacher instead of call a pastor to come and minister to you and, and bring the ministry that God's given him to your, into your building. 
Can you see the difference? If you can hire a pastor, you can fire a pastor. But if you have a man that's called of God and you fire him, God won't send you another good one. That's why I keep saying, know who your pastor is. If he's not your pastor, find your pastor. Find your pastor. 